My grandmother is 92. She lives in an assisted living facility and hasn't been able to have visitors for a while now. The dining rooms are closed, so she won't be leaving her little apartment for meals either. She's pretty healthy, but I wonder if she'll ever leave her apartment again. Honestly, that's a thought that's crossed my mind. Three times a day, a home health aide brings her food, others give her medication, and these are the only people she's interacting with. You know, they're essential, and so they still have to go to work, and they're taking care of some of the people that I love the most. According to payscale.com, home health aides make an average of $11 an hour, and they are literally risking their lives with each person they interact with. Meanwhile, I'm recording this from my pretty cozy home office. I'm still working from a safe distance, I had my groceries delivered recently. I'm experiencing a lot of privilege in this situation, and every day I'm thankful. So yeah, we're all experiencing the same pandemic, but it's not impacting us equally. Still, if there's one thing that we all share, it's a hope that things will get back to normal, soon. But I'm not sure that normal is gonna look the same when we get there. And normal certainly was working a lot better for some people than for others. So maybe we actually need to go beyond normal. Beyond Normal explores what it takes to cultivate and maintain our well-being in this time of national and global crisis. My name is Amy Conger. My team and I are going to bring you conversations with thought leaders from different facets of health and well-being. The goal is to better understand what it takes to be well in today's world. As we think about how this health crisis impacts different communities and individuals in our country, I want to talk about diversity and inclusion. So that's why we have Aparna Ray on the podcast. Growing up in five countries, Aparna witnessed the power of diverse voices early in life. She's founded Moving Beyond, a practice that creates positive impact for people and the planet by centering diversity, equity, and inclusion. She's also a co-founder of Future for Us, which is dedicated to advancing women of color through community, culture, and career development. Thank you for joining us today, Aparna. Thanks for having me, Amy. As you watch the way that the United States is reacting to our current health crisis, what kind of things have you been thinking about? So I'm thinking about three things. The first thing that I'm thinking about is care and self-care. And in that, I'm really thinking about who is responsible for providing care to others. Earlier in the introduction, you talked about your grandma. And what's most likely is that the people that are taking care of her are people of color, folks that don't have the privilege of working from home. The other thing I'm thinking about is self-care and who feels entitled to get the care and compassion during what is certainly a moment of crisis for all of us. The second thing that I've been thinking about is resilience. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot. We hear about resilience and grit and agility. And in this moment, what I've been noticing both personally and professionally is that people of color and women of color in particular are organizing and creating mutual aid networks. They are jumping into action and responding with urgency. And in this moment, in sharp contrast, I'm also noticing a lot of folks with privilege of working from home complaining about how challenging it is to manage the array of domestic tasks and childcare and homeschooling. And, and while I think all of those feelings are totally legit, I'm, I'm really struck by the resilience that communities of color are showing now. And in, in particular, there's an example that comes to my mind Living in Seattle, one of the things that I've noticed is a lot of black and brown chefs converting their restaurants and kitchens into community kitchens that are 
cooking for those that are working on the front lines or they're cooking for those that have no other option. And the third thing that I'm, I'm thinking about is, you know, how we start to separate truth from reality. Um, the truth is that all lives matter. But in this moment, um, the reality is that we don't have systems that equitably benefit everybody. And those systems are on display in a really big way right now. I think about the fact that social distancing is a privilege. It means you have a home and it means that your home is large enough. Um, sheltering in place is a privilege. Not everybody has access to housing. I think being able to work from home is a huge privilege. It means that you have a job that you can actually do from home. And combined, what a lot of it means is that you're probably white, middle or upper middle class and educated. Because in this moment, the reality is that communities of color are on the front lines in responding to this crisis as caregivers, domestic workers, nurses, and educators. I hear that there's maybe a difference in circumstances, A, but also a point of view and response. Another thing I'm thinking about too is when we think about staying at home and having that be a privilege. I'm thankful that my home is a safe place for me to be too. I think as folks are really focused on the financial outcomes of this crisis, which, you know, all of us are in it together and we're all seeing our retirement portfolios be decimated as a result of what's happening to the stock market. I am thinking about, you know, millions of women in particular who are in unsafe relationships and the reality of sheltering in place is that it's not safe. I'm also thinking about all of the folks that are being forced to be um, in community to make a living. And I, you know, that's everybody who is part of the gig economy thinking about, you know, what's often positioned as choice or freedom is not actually choice or freedom. It's a type of work that comes with few social safety nets. I'm also thinking about parents and single parents in particular who have, in addition to their jobs, the additional responsibility of caregiving solo and homeschooling solo. Yeah, I think, you know, circumstance is such an interesting word. And I think in the, in the U.S. context in particular, generations of inequity have brought us to this place where some of us have really the privilege and circumstances that allow us to see the storm through in the safety and comfort of our homes and others who stand to lose their livelihoods and their homes both. Yeah, so pretty much every organization is having to very quickly decide how they're going to respond to the situation. Um, all those responses are likely to adapt and change as this all unfolds. And in, in my perspective, it looks like it's still unfolding. What are you watching for in those responses? And what are you hoping to see? One of the things that I'm looking for is organizational leadership that's, you know, quickly moving from shifting their organizations from a place of chaos um, to a place of complexity. And I know this is a lot of jargon, but when we think of... I was going to ask, what do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, so complexity is where, you know, some of the variables we can control and there are a lot of other variables that we can't control. We have some practices in place that can guide the way, but ultimately everything is emergent. 
and we can control a lot of it. But chaos is like the wildfires in Australia. You know, we don't know how to control the situation because we don't even know what all the variables are. In that moment, in that moment of chaos, all we want to do is get the number of fires reduced so we can start actually solving the problems. And so with organizations, I'm really looking for leadership that, you know, quickly moves from the place of chaos to a place of complexity where they can actually start solving the problems. I'm also looking at the role of equity and and how organizations are responding to this crisis. In particular, I'm, I'm looking for the ways in which organizations are laying off staff, which is, you know, the unfortunate reality in this moment. But I'm looking to see if leaders are being intentional about the teams that they are putting in place. Are they gender balanced? Have they thought about the race and ethnic makeup of the staff that they're keeping on? And also, you know, what they are communicating to their stakeholders. Are they able to show up with transparency and vulnerability? Or are companies just marketing to me without taking into account the fact that we're in this pandemic, you know? So are you going to be a distillery that converts its operations to making hand sanitizers? Or are you going to be a direct-to-consumer brand that's going to just offer me more of the same but for 25% off. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of different, a lot of variety in the emails that are coming into my inboxes and the way different companies are kind of reacting to the situation. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm interested about that idea of chaos and complexity. Are we collectively in chaos right now? I think that we're in a state of chaos by choice. I think that as as a consultant who, you know, is often supporting leaders solve for systemic challenges, there's always a choice. And what I'm noticing in our response to the crisis is that we are continuing to solve for the wrong problem, which ultimately lands us um, deeper into a place of chaos. You know, for, for example, we know that social distancing, we know that that's a best practice for reducing the spread of an easily transmissible um, disease. But instead, we're seeing certain states not shut down their borders. We, you know, watched partiers in Florida bring the COVID-19 back to their homes and increase the spread. I do think in this moment, you know, we are bringing the chaos onto ourselves. We know what best practices are. Um, We also know what best practices are for supporting a large percentage of the population that's lost access to income. I would really love to see, you know, our government bring the level of chaos down and into a place of complexity. Seems like it's a lot about leadership, right? It really is about leadership. And um, I think it's about leadership that values equity, that values diversity, and that values inclusion. So, you know, earlier I said that the truth is that all lives matter, but the reality is that we don't have a system that reflects that. And so both in like our national leadership and also at the organizational level, I think this is the time, like more than ever before, where we really have to make decisions from a a place of equity, because leaving any one person behind really undermines all of us. As we talk about kind of getting back to normal, what's it going to take to get there? And should we be going back 
to normal? <laughs> I mean, I think that for some of us, the normal is really great. Um, we have offices and coworkers we enjoy. We have, you know, jobs that we care a lot about. We're doing work that feels really satisfying. But I think that for a large percentage of the population, the normal was pretty screwed up to begin with. I think about the fact that we live in a country where more than 50% can't come up with just $1,000 in a moment of crisis. So what happens when there is a pandemic and we can't work anymore? If you can't come up with $1,000 in a moment of crisis, what's going to happen when you don't have income to cover rent and other basics, right? Um, I think about the normal around the minimum wage. The fact that the government is offering rebate checks for $1,200 a month, which is the equivalent of 40 hours a week at the federal minimum wage, not being enough for me brings into question just the normal around the wages that people earn and why so many of us feel entitled to salaries and rebates on our taxes when the vast majority of the population can't make rent on one job. So I really hope that we're not going back to normal. I really hope that as we write out this crisis, we really think about where there are opportunities to rebuild, keeping in mind the needs of really everybody, right? And building a world that works for a single black mom. When I'm giving advice to clients and they're asking me what systems are worth building, my advice to them often is, well, build a system that's gonna help a single black mom be successful. And so I think that that's kind of my challenge to our society and country at large is, if we were building for that person, what would we build and how would we build differently? Yeah, that that brings a real focus when you really picture it like that. Are you seeing opportunities for us to emerge in this whole thing better than we were before? Are, are you optimistic? I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, I see a lot of parallels between this moment that we're in today and 2008, 2009. So I, I finished grad school in 2009 and, and came into the workforce at a pretty low time for our, our economy. You know, a lot of us um, gr that graduated came into a job market that was that was not great. We took jobs that didn't pay enough. We did work that we frankly didn't want to do because we we had obligations. We had to pay our student loans. We had rent to make. You know, what's there to learn from just ten years ago? One of the things that I hope that we take forward is that. This is the time to invest in people that build the country. And I really hope that as we think about building so that we're better off, we are thinking about what the needs of everyday people are. Do we still need to be deeply obsessed about quarterly earnings? I don't think so, right? Instead, I would love for us to be thinking about what the median income is of every demographic of the population in any region. So in places like Seattle, what I think that, you know, emerging better than before means is that African-Americans are not making $34,000 a year in compared to our regional median of over $100,000. 
right? Like that's the gap that I'd like to see us close as we start to come out of this. How do businesses take steps to start to close that gap? Well, I don't know all of the answers, but I suspect that you have to acknowledge the problem before you can start to build solutions. A couple of weeks ago, I read a report from Mercer, which is a human capital consulting practice. It's a global organization. And they put out a report every year called When Women Thrive. And one of the things that their report found was that most organizations know that they need a race strategy to address gender equity in their workplace, but less than 20% of organizations actually do that. They're just looking at gender or they know that they need a race strategy, but are not actually taking action. You know, and in reading that report, one of the things that really struck me was we have access to data and we are not taking action on it. How do we make decisions using that data rather than gut instincts? I wonder if the situation may make us a little more curious about how it's affecting different people differently, maybe willing to look at that data. I'm hoping that that's going to happen. So we kind of talked about companies, larger organizations. As we get a little bit closer to home, what can our communities do to help us move forward as we maybe start to go beyond normal? I think there's a lot we can do. You know, one of the things that I invite everybody to do is respond to the census. The U.S. census is what informs the access to critical dollars. It's what helps the federal and the state government allocate resources for different communities. And one of the things that we can do to make all of our lives better moving forward is to get an actual count of who we are as communities. And so it's something that can be done online. It only takes a couple of minutes. So fill out your census form. Can you remind me, what's the timeline on that? This is a, it needs to be done this year, right? 2020? It needs to be done this year. Um, I think we have until the end of the summer to get it done. Um, and, you know, typically the government does a lot of practice runs so they know how to collect information um, in different kinds of communities, in urban areas versus rural areas versus reservations. Um, and this year we know that we can be doing door-to-door -door canvassing. The government can't do it. And so we really have to pitch in and remind each other to, to do that. But the other thing that we can do um, that doesn't in fact require us to do things much more differently is support family-run businesses in our communities. No matter where you live, you probably have a lot of really great grocers or restaurants that are run and operated by, by small families. I'm not talking about chains, but you know, those really awesome mom and pop stores to the extent possible, you know, order takeout. I mean, it sounds counterintuitive, but if you can afford it, do that. I think the other thing that we can do is pay for services to folks that are in caregiving roles or domestic work roles, um, but do some of that work yourself. And the goal is in those actions, we sort of help stabilize our communities and we keep money in our communities. I get it. Instead of saying, okay, I don't need you this month because we're socially distancing, saying I'm going to continue to pay what I normally would um, and we'll just, we'll resume business as normal as soon as it's safe to do that. Yep. Yeah, that's a great idea. What else can we do as individuals? Is there anything else if we were to kind of start to emerge from the situation, maybe better than before, 
any other small things we can do? So the small things that we can do are actually some really big things, which is starting to be mindful and shifting our awareness, you know, asking ourselves about like who we expect what from and how we communicate with people around us. I'm thinking about, you know, bringing into awareness some of the biases that we have, for instance. Um, I've noticed in calls with colleagues, you know, whose kids popping into the window, the Zoom screen, we find cute, and who are we irritated with for doing the same thing? And so just a little bit of mindfulness around expectations. Um, I also think that for so many of us working from home, being really mindful of the parents in the group, you know, knowing that their routines have gone completely awry, all of the ways in which I think that we can start to become flexible and patient and more compassionate with anybody whose reality is different than ours and, and just thinking about what it means to start becoming more curious and, and perhaps complaining a little bit less. Part of knowing that we're in it together is also in knowing that we'll all get out of it together. And so just being curious about our interactions and our choices, I think is gonna, is gonna take us a long way in coming out on the other end a little bit more sane. I think about giving people the benefit of the doubt, you know, we're all, we're all just trying to get through the best we can. And we all are dealing with different circumstances. Just try to be a little more kind in some of our, as you said, expectations and maybe judgments of others. Well, I think that the good that's going to come of this is that a huge mirror is being held up. I think for many people, it's the first time that they are really seeing the gross inequities play out. We are seeing more people file for unemployment now than they did during the last recession, right? And that's the one that we all remember. And so I think coming out of this, we will all have the opportunity to pick a side, you know, like, are we on the side of equity or are we on the side of furthering a system that benefits so few? And I think we won't have excuses. You know, we won't be able to say, oh, but I don't see that or I never saw it. Um, I think that we see it in pretty dramatic ways now. And, you know, folks that have parents living in care facilities, I think that they see it. I think for parents that have complained about educators, I think that they see it. I think they see how hard homeschooling is. I think they see how hard wrangling their own kids can be at times. And I think none of us are missing the fact of who is working in grocery stores and all of those gig jobs that keep us all afloat. I think that that is one huge silver lining. And as somebody who works in diversity, equity, and belonging, I mean, I really hope that coming out of this, leaders can really sink their teeth into the innovation and resilience of communities of color, you know, and are able to go beyond just, you know, representational diversity or, or checking a box approach to their diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives, and really sink their teeth into the fact that, like, there is a demographic in the U.S. that's helping us all, you know, and how we benefit from keeping them engaged and thriving in 
the next version of the future of work that we build. Yeah, it's a real opportunity for perspective. It's clear we have a lot to learn. So thank you for sharing. So that brings us to our close. And I want to thank my guest, Aparna Ray, for sharing her thoughts and advice for us today. Thank you so much, Aparna. Thanks, Amy. And if you want to learn more about Aparna Ray, Being by The Big No offers an online course taught by her. It's called Promoting Diversity, Creating Inclusion. Aparna, how can people learn more about you and what you're up to? Yeah, well, I definitely invite everybody to check out the course. Um, I think it's a, a little insight into how we can work differently and create a world where everybody thrives. You can also find me at movingbeyond.co to learn a little bit more about my firm's approach to building a more inclusive world of work. Look, I know what we all want. We just want to get back to normal, but we have to accept that that normal, that's over. But what we were thinking of as normal, it wasn't really working for a lot of us. Normal was making us sick. Normal was making us tired. Normal was making us feel disconnected and burned out. We can do way better. We can learn how to go beyond normal. This has been Beyond Normal, a production of The Big No. You can learn more about The Big No and all we do to help people build the skills of well-being by going to thebigno.com. That's the big K-N-O-W.com. Gratitude goes out to all the people who helped make this podcast happen. Special thanks to Nate Matson, Tom Godfrey, TMR, Damon Kaler, and the whole team at The Big No. I'm Amy Conger, wishing you health and well-being. Goodbye for now. <laughs>